Hi, everybody. I'm King Kaufman, Joe Garofoli's producer on It's All Political. Joe's on vacation, and he asked me to come in and pinch hit for him for a few seconds to introduce his interview with Julian Castro. We're going to replay it for you. It looks like he's running for president in 2020. Castro is the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. He served under President Obama. Before that, he was the mayor of San Antonio. So we're going into the archives, but not very far. This was just in October when he came on It's All Political. And as you'll hear Joe say, it was already pretty clear. He was running for president. He'd published a memoir. He'd visited Iowa and New Hampshire, that kind of thing. Now he's gone on the Stephen Colbert Show with his twin brother, Joaquin, and sort of kind of announced, at least legally speaking, Joaquin made the announcement. I'll I'll, I'll speak on his behalf here. He's going to run for president. How about that? Wait. So now, I've heard. I have heard from someone very close to you that you're running for president. Just for the FEC lawyers, he didn't say it. I said it. So it won't be official until January 12th. But the exploratory committee is launched. The twin brother has made the sort of kind of announcement. Listen, Julian Castro is running for president in 2020. Here is the October 18th episode of It's All Political. Joe Garofoli's interview with Julian Castro. Enjoy. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, our guest is someone who is very likely going to be running for president in 2020. Julian Castro, the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under President Obama. Or you may remember him as the former mayor of San Antonio. Now, how do we know he's running for president? He's got a memoir out, and he's spending a lot of time in Iowa. We talk about his life growing up in the working-class neighborhood of San Antonio and how he made it to Stanford and Harvard Law School. He also responds to criticism he receives for not being a fluent Spanish speaker and whether he is tough enough to stand up to President Trump. Next, find out more about a Democrat who may be running for president on It's All Political. Julian Castro, welcome to It's All Political. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, one just you are calling from Washington D.C. right now. You're about to launch uh, your new book, the first event of your book tour. It's called An Unlikely Journey, which will take you to the Bay Area here for a couple of appearances. We'll get to those in a minute. One at uh, Dominican University. Um, but let's talk before we get into the book and your and your life. I want to let's talk a little uh, politics of the moment here. Um, you just uh, spent the weekend uh, campaigning in Iowa for some of the Democrats there. As we said, you got a new memoir out. You've got a new super PAC. Let's do the math here. It all says you're running for president in 2020. <laughs> Is that or where are you on the decision making uh, tree on that? Uh, well, you're right that uh, that I've been thinking about it, and you know, I've been very straightforward with folks uh, that I'm thinking about running for president. I've been out to Iowa a couple of times and New Hampshire a couple of times. I'm going to make a decision after the November election, uh, and there are kind of two parts to that. One is personal. You know, my family and I, of course, have talked about it, but we're gonna we're gonna have to slow down and and. Uh, really have a long conversation about what that would mean. Yeah, you have two. My wife, are like four, four and two, or some, somewhere around there. Uh, they're, uh, they're my daughter is nine and my son is three. Nine and three. Yeah, so we have you know fairly young kids, 
And then I also, as I travel to different states, helping candidates that are running in 2018, I'm getting a sense of where folks are at, you know, what, what folks are thinking. Uh, the November election is also going to give us a lot of good information about the mood of the country and what people are thinking. So there's not a rush to make that kind of decision. And, um, and I'll definitely uh, wait until after November to make it. What are, you, what are you looking to hear when you're sort of taking the pulse of the, of the country when you're out there? What people are talking about, what are the issues that are at the forefront of their mind? Uh, how do they feel about the current administration? What I hear is a lot of dissatisfaction, uh, a lot of uh, disappointment with Donald Trump. Um, and more than that, you know, you hear a lot of folks that are disgusted by the way that politics is being done um, with this Republican majority and with the president uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing um, that people want a new generation of leadership. Uh, and I think that the next Democratic nominee is probably going to be a relatively new face. And so all of those things are relevant as I think about my own future. And you say in the book that um, you, your, your wife has been with you for a long time, when, even uh, when you're running for office in San Antonio, where you're from. And you say, we have a fantastic, this is a quote, we have a fantastic life together, but politics occupies this sort of, this in-between zone for her. She doesn't love it, she doesn't hate it, but she engages in it because she knows it matters and because it makes you happy. How do you how do you reconcile that? Because running for president, as you know, as you know, you've you've been in the national stage as a as a, as a cabinet secretary. Uh, this is a a more than a full time commitment. Is how how does how do you how do you factor all that in? Well, that's part of it, you know, and that's part of the the uh, the conversation that we're going to have to have. You know, Erica has always been wonderfully supportive of me uh, during my time in public service during my campaigns. Um, but you're right that. Uh, this is something on another level. Um, and uh, it, it's important that if I'm going to take that plunge, that all of us um, are prepared for that and, and also that it makes sense for all of us. It just can't be me, you know, it can't only be about me. So uh, that's the conversation that we want to have. And let's talk Texas because I know there are many of our core listeners and readers are, um, are especially the, the Democrats, of course, are pulling for Beto O'Rourke in uh, your, your home state. He's raised $38 million over the last three months, but he's still behind by nine points. Why is that? And people hate Ted Cruz. On, I mean, even Republicans say they hate Ted Cruz. Why yeah. is he so far behind? Well, you know... I'm going to sound like, uh, I'm sure, a broken record, and I'm going to sound cliched, but I would take those polls with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen some fantastic examples in this cycle alone of how these polls have been off. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking about the Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez race right. against Joe Crowley in New York, uh, and somebody that I supported in uh, Andrew Gillum down in Florida. I mean, Andrew, uh, headed into the last couple of days of that five-way primary was down by more than 10 points in those polls. I mean, not a single poll got that right. And yes, it's true that Texas is still, you know, relatively conservative, although that has been changing. In 2016, it had one of the biggest jumps toward the Democrat, toward Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. of any of the states in our country. Um, Bethel O'Rourke is a fantastic candidate. Uh, he has inspired a lot of folks. 
Uh, he's been to every single one of the 254 counties in Texas. Uh, he is, has outraised Ted Cruz, I think, something like five out of the last six cycles and just set the record for fundraising you know, based on a whole bunch of individual small-dollar contributions. So I just have this feeling that it's possible this time that, it, that the dam is just going to break. You know, one of those things where you just say, wow, what happened here? Um, it's also true that, you know, yes, there are a lot of headwinds and there are a lot of people, because there, you can still vote straight ticket down there, that will vote Republican. But if there's, if there's a chance, you know, this is the best chance that we've had in, in uh, 25 years. Do, uh, do you think the Democrats take the House? I do. Oh, I do. Yeah, I think we're going to take the House. Uh, I believe it's possible to take the Senate, although, of course, that is harder just given where the contests the, the um, contests that are hot are right now in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the book and your your upbringing, which is uh, which is fascinating. You read the book and it's uh, I have to, uh, I want to preface my remarks by saying it's it's not a typical political book in that it's not A to Z of every program you ever uh, sponsored it while uh, mayor of San Antonio and uh, at, at HUD. There's a little bit of that, but it's, it's really very personal and, and very, um, uh, you come across a very introspective, uh, sensitive type of guy. Um, and for those who don't know, you have a, a twin brother, Joaquin, who's a congressman from Texas. You grew up in this working class neighborhood, raised largely by your grandma and your mom. Your mom's a, a Chicano uh, community organizer there, ran for city uh, council a couple years before you were born, I believe. Uh, your dad was largely out of your life. He had, he had his own family, actually, with several kids when he and, uh, and your mom got together. And your book, as I said, deals very frankly with your grandma's depression, your mom's bouts with drinking. And you say in the book, at age 11, my brother and I essentially had no curfew. Mom was also lax about household chores. There weren't even hard and fast rules about whether we had dessert before a meal or after. But she was very uh, focused on, on school. And you and your gr- brother grew up to be very incredibly disciplined people. On your own, you you, you uh, figured out how to get enough credits to graduate from high school early. Then you both got into Stanford, and you both got into Harvard Law School. How how did you guys make it out of that neighborhood, where, as you say, half your classmates didn't? Was it what was it? Well, I think uh, the the interesting part there was that my mom, um, you know, raising us mostly without my father. They split when we were eight, but um, with my grandmother there, uh, what made the difference was that she was a, she was a very, very loving mother. And, um, she made sure that she put us first. Uh, I talk in the book about the challenge that she had, you know, at one time, uh, she was drinking too much and she was going down the path basically of, of it taking her over. And one day in October, 1986, she just stopped, just quit drinking. Yeah. Um, and I think, and I, I know, I, I want to be careful because just because somebody is able to stop doesn't mean that they don't love their family or their kids. But sure. I saw that at the time as, uh, you know, a real measure of how determined she was to to be there for us, for Joaquin and me. And so it started with a mother that that was always looking out for us. and And then... Um, you know, that even though she was very lenient and let us do what we wanted to do, I mean, 
what she helped us do was to develop an internal self-discipline where we took pride in doing our homework and doing well in school and, uh, you know, making sure that we continued to, to excel and look forward to going to college and so forth. Um, and then along the way, we also had some, some great uh, teachers. You know, I talk about a couple of them there um, who did look out for us and, and help make sure that we were successful. And you, uh, when you came to Stanford, uh, it was also a, a bit of an, an awakening for you, and sort of a because you guys had never traveled outside the the county before. You you got in a plane and went to Stanford. Is that accurate? Uh, no, no, we had been on a plane once before. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, but that you get. Yeah, but basically, we had never, you know, we we had never been to Stanford. We'd been on a plane once, uh, and I think been to the Grand Canyon, but we took a bus. So <laughs> that's, that's a long drive. Yeah. So, um, so, but our, our experience outside of our neighborhood was very limited at that time. And so, when we showed up on campus at Stanford, it was like a whole new world. I mean, it's like that pretty much for everybody, but for us, especially because we hadn't seen much outside of our home city. And you you get there and you it it becomes clear to you that um, there is a, you know two Americas because a lot of those kids are there who go to Stanford and other schools are are, are Trustafarians. They uh, not only that they um, are growing up with parents who are you know doctors and lawyers and 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 uh, you know wealthy from wealthy families and they're kind of on that track right away. Um, how did being there shape you? Uh, it ex- exposed me to a whole new world of ideas and people from different backgrounds that I never would have experienced if I hadn't gone there or a similar place. Uh, I think it just it made me uh, more curious about the world outside of where I had come from. And then for for back home, you know, for my home city of San Antonio, it sparked in me this desire to go back and help um, ensure that other people who grew up where I did could have great opportunity in life. Because I saw the differences between where I had grown up in San Antonio and that Bay Area. And I saw in the Bay Area a place that was more educated, who had higher income levels, uh, was at that time in the early 90s was more entrepreneurial and ready for the future. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to combine that with the things that I saw that were wonderful about my hometown. Um, for instance, that there's still this sense of community, the sense of connection between people. Like if two people pass each other downtown on the street, they still look each other in the eye. You know, there's not this guardedness that sometimes exists as cities uh, become bigger and so forth. And you you had your uh, your brother was there with you. Um, and as you write in the book, it was, it was very... Um, it was great to have that support where other kids who were coming from circumstances like you didn't. And that's, you know, it's, it's one thing to get into a school like that, but it's another to uh, survive and, uh, and thrive there. How did, how did, uh, and you, you guys were, you know, as you described um, growing up, you're like, like, like twins I knew growing up, guys who were constantly, you know, fighting and wrestling and, 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 and very competitive with each other, but you also had each other's back a lot. How did, how did that uh, help you out both uh, at Stanford uh, and, and later at Harvard? Well, I'm convinced that if I hadn't had my brother growing up, if we hadn't been twins and as close as we were, that I wouldn't be who I am or where I am today. Um, the fact that he and I, you know, I had my best friend with me all the time. Mm-hmm. 
and you know the folks who have twins, if they're parents or uh, or if you are a twin or you know your siblings were, hopefully you weren't like the odd man or odd woman out <laughs> in that family. Oh, anyway. But you know, you know, they go know that it's a very special kind of bond and relationship, and that helped me in all ways. You know, in school, um, in sports, um, we used to compete, and I think that made us both better. One of the great things about growing up, maturing, just like in the way that your relationship with your parents is different when you're 15 and you're rebelling, a lot of folks, versus when you're 35 and you appreciate them much more oftentimes, right? Um, our relationship, the relationship between Joaquin and me, um, matured from one of competition to one of really collaboration and helping each other out. And and that's been great, you know, just a wonderful a wonderful thing to see in our relationship. And you guys are each other's sort of top political advisors, I imagine, informally. No, no doubt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, much has been made the fact that, that um, you don't uh, speak fluent Spanish. You understand it, but don't. In fact, and it came up this week. And as a matter of fact, at Stanford, which I found interesting, when you landed there, someone greeted you as, oh, hi, uh, Julian. And you're like, well, I, I grew up saying, being referred to as Julian. And then that changed there. So Stanford's a little bit of awakening there. And I want to ask you, this week, Steve, Representative Steve King, who is a, sort of a mini-President uh, Trump and some of the racist things he said in the past, tweeted, two Texas politicians, and because you guys were, I guess you were out there in Iowa, the Castro tin, twins took Spanish lessons to qualify as retroactive Hispanics. What, what, do, you, what do you make of that? And is that, when he said that? Yeah, just, you know, Steve King, uh, because he's been so ineffective in his district over there in the 4th Congressional District of Iowa, he does what a lot of politicians do to try and uh, gin up support, and they just distract, and they focus on things that are divisive, that they, that they think uh, are going to resonate in their district. And I was just in the 4th Congressional District. You know, he, I think he said that because... They announced that I was going to go over there. Yeah, I was campaigning with a young man named J.D. Schulten, who grew up there and uh, is you know, within a couple of points. And I would love to see him get elected, J.D. Schulten get elected and beat Steve King uh, on November 6th. But yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise that, that Steve King embraces this sort of intolerant, bigoted notion of the country. Uh, but we're better than that. And the people of the 4th Congressional District in Iowa... Uh, I got to see firsthand are much better than that. More broadly about your question on Spanish and so forth, I think that, um, you know, part of the reason that that, uh, Joaquin and I were dominant in English, like we speak some Spanish. It's not zero to a hundred, right? It's just we're not completely fluent in it. But you you had a whole history, and folks will tell you, no matter whether they're from you know, their family came from Italy or from Germany or over the generations, right? There was a there was a, a sense among parents and grandparents to make sure that your kids or your grandkids learned English mm-hmm. because oftentimes those groups, whichever one of those groups it was, had faced discrimination. And my mother, for instance, you know, folks uh, during her time and at her school, you would get punished in certain ways if you spoke Spanish in school. And so there's this sense that, okay, well, first let's make sure that our kids um, speak English. 
And we did pick up some Spanish because my grandmother would speak it. She spoke both languages, but would speak it, and she would watch telenovelas and uh, listen to some Spanish language radio. Um, but yeah, our our dominant language was English. Uh, the other thing I'll say about that is that there's no one way to categorize like whether you're Latina or Latino, right? It's not just do you fluently speak Spanish or, you know, or do you have brown skin? You know, people come in all different colors from different countries of that national origins and ability to speak Spanish. And I think the problem with a lot of even the political mainstream media mm-hmm. is that they try they tend to reduce it to that. Right. Um, for instance, during the vice presidential selection process, there were some pundits who said, oh, well, you know, why would you select Leon Castro? He doesn't fluently speak Spanish, as though that's the only thing that's going to matter to to folks, and specifically to the Hispanic community. It's just a very, um, a very one-dimensional, uninformed view of what moves a community. Do, and and you, that's only asked of Latino politicians as well. I mean, I don't hear, uh, you know, my uh, situation's the same way. My mom was first generation. She, you know, spoke English in school. My grandmother, uh, you know, they spoke uh, both in the house. Um, But, you know, I don't think anybody of any other uh, nationality is asked that. We don't hear, we don't ask that of of Chinese Americans or or Japanese Americans or anyone else. Why, Why do you think that is? Well, probably, uh, number one, because you've had, just in relatively recent history, you've had this influx of Latino immigrants that do speak Spanish. You know, they're coming from uh, El Salvador or Honduras or Guatemala or Mexico. And so, of course, people think, oh, well, you know, this is their idea of of every single uh, Latino or Latino, and they think, okay, well, then you're supposed to speak Spanish, right? The other thing I think is that a lot of times, if you are Latina or Latino, people assume that you just got here, Mm. you know. And in Texas and California, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and other places, um, you know, certainly take uh, the island of Puerto Rico. There are people that have have lived in this country for generations. Mm -hmm. And so there's a three-dimensionality to it. It's not a simplistic kind of, well... You just got here, or everybody speaks Spanish. Um, having said that, I'm proud that we live in a country today where uh, my daughter, who's nine years old, and her peers, uh, you know, she's in a bilingual program learning Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we can celebrate that now in ways and encourage it in ways that you know, 50 years ago we just didn't do when my mom was growing up. And that's a beautiful thing to watch for the country. That's a sign of progress. Uh, and, and I'm proud that my daughter is going to speak fluent Spanish at some point. Do you, if, if you were to run for president, you know that uh, you've seen the way the president campaigns. It's very, uh, you know, a very bare-knuckled. Uh, you've, you've seen the attacks he's had on everybody from Senator Warren to others. Uh, nothing is spared. Um, you know, from following your career for several years now, you, you always come across as very measured and even tempered. And uh, do, do you think you would be tough enough to go at him, you know, in that sort of bare knuckled way? Or, or, or is there another way? Well, I, you know, if I decide to run, I have no idea, no, no you know, 
I believe that uh, if I make a decision to run, that I'm going to be able to to hold my own in any situation. Mm-hmm. That's my lived experience. You know, I think um, a lot of what Donald Trump is about is all show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think whoever the Democratic nominee is has to be able to stand up and to hold their own. And there are so many folks out there that can do that. Um, but secondly, I don't believe that the answer to beating Donald Trump is to just be Donald Trump. Uh, you're not going to win like that. Uh, if you start looking at politically, who are the Democratic nominees who actually become president in the modern era? It's people who are able to offer a strong, optimistic vision for the country's future. Whether you're talking about Kennedy or you're talking about Clinton when he ran or Obama when he ran and won. Uh, not to tear everybody down. That doesn't mean that you don't engage in, in any kind of uh, contrast or back and forth about people's records. I, I don't think that in politics, you know, I think in politics there's always a place for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but fundamentally, people want light and not, you know, darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we need to get a nominee that offers something positive for the country's future and not just the insults and the narrow-mindedness and the reactionary politics of Donald Trump. And one more question about uh, the 2020, um, sort of a logistical one. California is going to have a uh, an outsized role in uh, the way it looks at this time uh, because uh, early voting starts almost at the same time as some of the early states do and California's uh, earlier much earlier in the primary calendar how do you think that's going to affect the race that's a great question um, I mean I think it is going to affect the race to some extent um, obviously if I do run I look forward to getting out to California again and uh, I see that as a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, because it's such a diverse state, uh, it's uh, a young state, uh, but it's a good question. I, I have a feeling, though, that because you have the Iowa caucuses, that I would be, after the fact, I'd be fascinated to see the percentage of people in any given election up to this point, you know, who vote within the first week or two weeks or so um, versus how, what percentage vote in that election in 2020 later on, if they can mail in a ballot or vote in person, yeah, I think what people are probably going to do, a greater percentage of people is probably wait to see how things are, are going in other places, except for the folks that are diehard supporters of, of right. anyone candidate. So, so they'd wait yeah. a little bit. Uh, what yeah, I think Iowa you're and... still going to get, you know, I think you're still probably going to get some effect of that. But there's no question that for California, I think that it's good um, for, for California that you're in the mix that early Texas is also on Super Tuesday. That makes a difference. And that whole stretch of southern states, obviously it has an impact on what issues candidates speak to and and that they have an important um, part of vetting the candidates. So, uh, you know, I, I think about just as an observer, I think about this 2020 race and the Democratic primary and whether I'm in it or not, number one, we have a strong bench of people. 
we have a lot of amazingly talented people with great stories to tell and good visions for the country. And it's a diverse group of people that reflect, I think, the breadth of the country in many ways. And um, there are several folks in that mix that I think would make great nominees uh, to go up against Donald Trump. So, you know, I'm excited about that. All right, uh, Secretary, you will be at Dominican University in San Rafael on Thursday, October 25th at 7 p.m. Give us a quick preview about what you will be doing there and talking about. Yeah, I'll be at uh, Dominican University on uh, the 25th and then at the Commonwealth Club on the 26th that is in true. San Francisco. And these are book events. And so um, I'm going to do an interview-style event and have an opportunity to, to uh, talk about the book and talk politics, of course, and then have a chance uh, for a Q&A for folks to come and ask questions. And uh, you know, look forward to answering people's questions, too, and uh, hope that listeners um, will consider getting out to those events. Great. And if you do indeed decide running, we would love to have you back on the podcast and uh, and, and hopefully live here in California. Absolutely. Okay. We'll do. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you all for listening. A reminder that Julian Castro will be talking about his new memoir, which is titled an unlikely journey, waking up from my American dream, at 7 p.m. at Dominican University on October 25th. He'll be at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on the next day. I'd like to thank Julian for being on the podcast. I'd like to thank Fernando Diaz, our managing editor for digital, for producing this. Our theme music is Cattle Call by Crow Song. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli, and you can email me at jgarifoli at sfchronicle.com. Remember, whether you have an identical twin brother who is fluent in Spanish or not, it's all political. <laughs>